This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Hey, how are you? I can't see anything. Are there anybody, uh, people out there? There are people out there. Who likes T-shirts? Oh, there's nobody back there. <laughs> there are some trailers from hell T-shirts. Yay! Uh, they're probably not even your size. I'm going to throw out two more. Then we'll get some more out later. Anyway, thank you all for coming. Oh, look at that. Oh, hey, we did get a slide. Joe is complaining we don't get a slide, but we got a slide. I am your host, Josh Olson. And I would like to introduce, always, sometimes, my co-host, the great Joe Dante. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm good. I didn't know we had a slide either. We do. We have a slide, apparently. And, and it tells us that we have a guest, which is nice, because normally Joe walks into these things not knowing what's coming, but our guest is Lee Winnell. He likes to keep me in the dark. Um, and, uh, oh, I just gave it away. This is so rehearsed. We're so already rehearsed. given it away. It's on the slide. I know. I know. It's <laughs> terrible. Anyway, um, why don't we just bring out our guest? Uh, this young man um, has been involved with some, I know this is Monster Palooza, so there's a chance you've heard of these movies. What, the Saw? Is that what it's called? This thing called The Saw. There was a sequel, I guess. Uh, Dead Silence. Um. <laughs> Lee Winnell. Ladies and gentlemen, Lee Winnell. Makes for and great I'm, radio. <laughs> and also uh, the writer-director of a movie, um, um, not, not that I'm not a fan of the other ones, but I fucking love Upgrade. Thank you, guys, you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Clearly you have great taste in films and you're a, I, that's why you're I a connoisseur of cinema. That's why that, you do that, this podcast. That is correct. Do you feel surrounded? I do a little bit. <laughs> do you want to sit on the end? Do you want to Maybe, say yeah, we can swap. Okay, you, you, fine. This is weird because then yeah, we can both look at you. Jay, I think you, everyone here would agree that Joe needs to be the centerpiece. Of I this, don't think so. Me. Yes. Half the time I don't even show up. <laughs> That's what makes you more important. It's like you limit the supply, therefore creating demand. That's right. Well, he actually he says he does. He does show. He's only missed one show. Now, who here thinks that Upgrade is Lee's best picture? <laughs> it's <just> like <laughs> some people are like, "What's Upgrade?" I well, you should see it. It's really it's, um, it's Lee's best picture. Thank you, guys. Thank you. <laughs> And, and, and who here thinks Gremlins 2? <laughs> that is not Lee's best picture. No, it's I just, as long as we're doing that. I really, I've, I've just, apropos of nothing, I've just, I have come to realize that Gremlins 2 is the network of my generation. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's sort of the connective tissue it is, of and, people. And yeah, just, just see it again if you haven't in a while. It's, um, I'm just in awe. 
uh, the fact that I get to sit here with a man I of I saw it opening weekend in theatres. Did you? Theaters. Yeah, I did too. That's a little shout out there to the Waverley Gardens Twin Cinema in Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> do the, the Any fans? Big See, fans of, of that. Of when you, when you make a movie for a big studio, it gets distributed overseas. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Even Australia gets it. Um, have you seen uh, that Twitter uh, account, the Institute of Gremlins Two Studies? I, I am I am intimately connected with it. Yes, I have. It's it's pretty clever. It might be my favorite thing you? on Twitter. No, it's not me. I have nothing to do with it. <laughs> oh, uh, well, Lee, thank you for uh, coming out. Thank you for having me. Um, we did. We did warn you that it was that it would just that we be were loose. doing. The, yes, yeah, yeah. Be, yeah. You did it's, give me advance warning. It's just conversation. Like the, that that was probably the worst introduction I've ever done. But it's it's. It's fine. It's we are coming on after Bruce Campbell. Am I allowed to and say? And Bruce that? had a set. You know, he had he had he he, <laughs> yeah. he prepared. But he here's did. my question. He did. Did Bruce have T-shirts? Uh, I'm just that is so just word. landed in the middle of nowhere. That, that is so that is so Trump-like. <laughs> it was what? <laughs> so Trump-like. Yes. Oh no, here's Trump-like. You know what's amazing is our crowd is so much bigger than Bruce Campbell's. Yeah. That's not true. This is actually the biggest crowd. You, you that want Monster Trump-like? Blues has ever had. I'll give you Trump-like. We have the biggest. We have crowds. photos to prove it. We have the biggest crowds of Monster biggest Palooza. Crowds. The biggest crowds in the history of Monster Palooza. Um, but Lee, uh, uh, you, we talked a little before the show, obviously, to get you ready for this. Um, you said something interesting that that uh, I always love when our our guests work and kind of segue into what they want to talk about. And you said something interesting about upgrade that kind of connected to our topic do you want to well yeah i mean to me sorry i'm just dropping a water bottle on the ground again makes for a great podcast listening um uh i wanted to make something that was i mean first and foremost i wanted to write a good story that people could watch without falling asleep that's the first goal but i wanted to secondly make something that was kind of a tribute or recalled uh the feeling that i had when i watched sci-fi films or horror films or action films from the VHS era just before the advent of CGI. Because it was a very specific time. Of course, I love films from the 70s and, um, you know, the early 80s as well. But there's something really specific about the late 80s, early 90s, where it was just about to be the end of an era. Like, I think someone told me, I could be wrong here, that Total Recall was the last big studio film before CGI. Straight after Total Recall, it was Jurassic Park and then Terminator 2, and then all of a sudden CG became this thing. And I actually watched Total Recall again pretty recently, and it's all practical effects. It's all miniatures. It's all... um, And it's just... I guess it's something that, for me as a filmmaker now, I I missed it. I didn't... I wasn't there. And, like, I, I, I... I worked with a lot of practical effects as much as I could on Upgrade, but you can't, you kind of can't get around it these days. You know, CG comes up, it's like, there'll always come a point where the producer says, it's too expensive and unwieldy to do it practically. Let's just use computers. And so I guess Upgrade was my tribute to those movies like Robocop, Total Recall, um, and I guess you could call it, call it the height of practical effects the movies that were made right before Jurassic Park came out. And uh, I just love those films. And I, in spirit, I wanted the film to be a lot like that. I guess it's nostalgia. I mean, it is. And I mean, for you, Joe, do you feel like, as someone who was there during this period of films where 
that people are so nostalgic about, do you find yourself rolling your eyes a little bit like, it wasn't that fucking great? No, it it was pretty great. <laughs> you know, all, the, yeah. the movies you mentioned are all movies by Rob Bottin. Uh, yeah, and 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 Rob's Rob, who started with me very very young, uh, and I, he did a n- number of pictures for me, and then he did the the thing, of course, uh, but and his work in Total Recall is 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 phenomenal, and it's and it, as you say, it was the last time that you could go to a producer and say, I'm going to make this guy's head turn into 27 different pieces and then I'm going to reassemble them again all, and I'm going to do it all on camera. Uh, and then two years later, it was like, well, that's obviously going to be CGI. Yeah. Uh, because, because, you know, and you, from a producer's point of view, you have to say, well, look, you know, obviously it took a lot of time and a lot of effort to create and shoot that practical stuff. Uh, and CGI is something that, first of all, on the set, which is very expensive to spend money on the set, uh, hour by hour, and you say, well, look, we'll do that later. Because one guy on his computer is a lot cheaper than a whole crew of 40 people sitting around waiting for the makeup to dry. And, and I know that because on The Howling, we lost an entire day because by the time Rob had made up Bob Picardo as the werewolf, everybody was in super golden overtime and we couldn't shoot anything. <laughs> so he had, so- he had to keep the stuff on all night and we had to start it again in the daytime. So, the, I mean, there were drawbacks to it. But I think what you see on the screen is... Uh, there's a, a bit more magic to it than there is to CGI. Yeah, I mean, I think um, when something's actually in the room with you, uh, even for the actors, it's just better if, if they can touch it. You know, if they're standing in a, bi- in a big room surrounded by green screen, there's, it, it, I, I love the people on the set to be able to see the film that's going to happen. Like, we, we have one scene in Upgrade, I don't know if anyone who's seen it remembers, where this guy gets cut through the face. Basically, Logan's character just drives his knee into the back of his head and uses this kitchen knife. So we did that practically. We built the top half of a guy. We did it the way you would have done it in 1986. We built a beautiful-looking prosthetic. There's like two people in Australia that do this, by the way. Two people left in Australia. There's a lot more here. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I could probably throw a rock and hit 10 people who could build me a prosthetic for a movie I wanted to shoot here. But in Australia, there's literally two people. And if they're booked, you're out of luck. So we got one of them and he was so enthusiastic because he was reading my script and he never gets to make anything. (laughs) And he's like, I can't believe I get to make stuff, dead bodies. And so he made this perfect recreation of the actor. But the problem was he only had two. He had the money for two. So he had two goes and that's it. And there's a certain, as Joe's saying with CGI, there's a thing of like, we'll fix it later. It takes the stress off because you're like, "If if we don't get it right the first time, the guy with the mouse, he'll just click it and we'll do it again. With, with practical, it's like the first one didn't work and we had one to go. And I was, my heart was pounding. My heart was pounding like I was in a trench in World War I waiting for the call to go over the top. Not quite, but you know, you know what I mean. I was scared. And, uh, and I was like, I was looking at this prosthetic and I was like, please work. And, and by the way, the person doing it was Logan. So, and I, I said to Logan, you... you um, you really have to get this right. I, don't, I know. <laughs> not to put any pressure yeah. on. I, I said to him, I said, I know I'm not supposed to say this. I'm supposed to touch you on the shoulder and say, it's fine. Don't worry. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you that if you don't fucking nail this, we're fucked. So get it right. And he was like, he just gave me this look and was like, okay. And he, the, the collective cheer that went up when it happened, it went, 
And then blood came out and the thing fell over and there was just this dead silence. Like you could hear tumbleweeds. And I just went, yes! And everyone started cheering. And it's like, it makes, it's so, it makes filmmaking so fun because it's so tactile. Like there was a bunch of bright red corn syrup on the floor that someone had to mop up and it was amazing. It wasn't the tennis ball on the end of a C-stand. But I'd argue, I mean, that I, I agree entirely, but that's also sort of a precious reason to cling to things in our business. When I hear people talk about film, it feels so good. I'm like, <laughs> I, I'm sitting in a theater watching. I don't care what it felt like. But what, what more than that to me is, is it's tactile visually, if that makes sense. I remember when Lucas went back and, quote, unquote, fixed Star Wars. Star Wars 1, I don't know. They call it Star Wars 4 now. You know what I mean. The first time he went back and revised the films, and there was the elephant with a rug on it from my youth, which you could smell and you could touch, and it had weight. And then next to it was this amazing photoreal alien creature that somehow didn't quite have the impact of an elephant with a rug on it. And it still doesn't. We still, you know, you miss that weight, you miss that density, you miss no matter how many imperfections they can program into the algorithm, it's still not human. I, I think you're touching on something really important here because this nostalgia debate that goes on in the film world, um, it happens with film versus digital. Right. You know, you have these film purists oh, who yeah. say shooting on anything other than film is a crime and it's video in public. And I don't, I don't, I've heard varying opinions, but I can tell you most people are of the view that, that Josh just said. That mo most people that I've talked to are of the view of who cares? There's only a few purists left clinging to, like I heard an anecdote, could be totally, totally just an urban legend, but the anecdote was that Jack White only records on equipment that was made before 1963. I actually think that's true, yeah. And I, I, I said to my friend, I told him that, and my friend went, his reaction was, oh, what an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I said, why? And he's like, who would do that? What a pretentious dick. And I was like, I said to my friend, why, why is this upsetting you? And he was like, because it's pretentious. And my thought was, no one uses that equipment anymore. There's one guy out there who's like, I want to record on this equipment because I like the way it sounds. He's the one in the minority. People, people sort of think that the film purists are the ones in the majority. They're not. There's like five of them. Yeah. And they're all filmmakers who can afford to do it. It's like Tarantino, Nolan. Most people don't. They're the ones in the minority, and I, my personal view is that we should be thankful that there are a few purists hanging on to this thing, because the thing is, again, I'm, I'm going to keep saying in my opinion because of uh, today's world, um, in my opinion, practical effects just do look better. It's not about, oh, that's the way they did it in the 80s when I was a kid, and my childhood's better than yours, so for the podcast listeners, I just gave the finger to the hypothetical person I was talking Everyone to. Everyone It's listening. not great radio, but I'm, I'm doing it for the audience. Um, it's, the thing is, in my opinion, practical effects, you can touch them. When, when I watch a movie that's filled with CG, it just looks like high-end animation to me. I'm not denig... Tons of great movies that I've loved have used a lot of CG. There are so many great artists that can do it. The company we used for Upgrade, Cutting Edge in Sydney, I love those guys. I don't want to disparage what they do for a living. But in my opinion, practical effects, you, it just looks real. You, it instantly takes me out of the movie when I see something that's completely CG. 
like the CG shark in unnamed CG shark movie I won't mention because I don't want to disparage anyone else's work as a fellow filmmaker, it doesn't look as good as the rubber shark in Jaws. It just doesn't. Because you can touch the rubber shark in Jaws. Well, also, the, the, the rubber shark in Jaws is edited differently than it would be because they're trying to disguise something. And so, therefore, one of the reasons that picture is so uh, successful and, and so it works so well is because there's a lot of impressionistic editing going on to tr disguise the limits of the actual puppet. Right. However, right. once you have CG, well, let's just have them jump up and eat a helicopter, and, which they do in those uh, asylum movies. Uh, and it's, it's like obviously a cartoon. And, and when, when a picture like Gravity, which is a wonderful picture, um, the amount of animation versus live action and gravity is it's, it, it is like 30% live action and all of it is animation. They put people's faces into suits and stuff like that. And there was some controversy uh, in the Academy about whether it should be considered a live action film or an animated film because there is so much CG in it. And, and there's one other, as a, as a, I'm not a film purist, but there's one thing that I do think is important about shooting on film, which, which, which only the people who are shooting on film will be able to um, uh, take advantage of later, which is that you have a negative. If you shoot a film, you have a negative. If you have a negative, you have something to preserve. If you shoot it on digital, it is you do not have a negative. You have a digital uh, record which then will have to be upgraded every time there's another digital record. And that's why so many TV shows and movies from the early 90s that were shot on digital are going to disappear because they never transferred them to film and there's no way to make Blu-rays, there's no way to upgrade them in any way. I did a series called uh, Erie, Indiana, which uh, was, I thought, a nice, a nice show, but it didn't, it didn't last long. But it was shot on film and edited on tape. And uh, now, if you want to find the episodes of Area Indiana, there is, there is a, there's a DVD, but it's very blurry, uh, and it'll never look any better because it's all off these one-inch tapes, which are now completely obsolete. See, that's a really interesting practical reason to keep film alive. It's not about nostalgia or some sort of wishy-washy view of how things should be. It's really practical. Like, you want to have it in a fridge somewhere living forever? Better have a film copy. But I, I wanted to ask you, because I'm, I'm talking about CG versus practical purely from this point of view of, oh, that was my childhood and what do I think looks better? But you've actually worked in both. I, I never, you've actually worked in that era when CG wasn't available and then you've worked in the CG era. So if, I wanted to know for you, what's, what's your opinion on it? Because you actually have the informed opinion in the room as opposed to me, I'm just well, making the, shit up. For me, the, 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 the moment of change came when I, during a movie called Small Soldiers where Stan Winston was designing uh, these, it's, it's about uh, you know, uh, toys that come to life. And there, are, there, are, there were real toys and real characters that were designed and they were supposed, to, they, they worked on the set, they had puppeteers, uh, but it was very awkward uh, puppeteering them because it's very hard to puppeteer things and not have the puppeteers in the shot. And uh, time after time, we would start to shoot a scene and we'd say, okay, well, the puppet is fine until he has to move. But when he has to move, take him out and we'll have to do him uh, with CG. Now, in that case, it was fine because they weren't supposed to move realistically. It wasn't like we were trying to make you believe that there was a tiger you know, or, or a lion or something with fur and hair, which they now can do quite well. But it was like they only have to move jerkily because they're toys. And so what was supposed to be a 60-40 blend of 
puppetry to CGI turned around to be the opposite. And uh, much more of the picture ended up being done with CGI. And I realized that for my, mo for my money, the best use of CGI uh, is to combine it to augment with, what is already there. With, with, with practical. If, if, we, if we did gremlins today, I would not do it with CGI. But what I would do is I would do puppeteering, but I would be, the puppeteering would be better because the puppeteers could be right next to the puppet. In the, in the, in the movies that we did, we had to constantly hide them between, behind chairs. We had to build sets and put them underneath the ground, uh, put them behind walls, and always frame it so that you didn't see the rods and all the other stuff that were operating the puppets. And it was very time-consuming and, and awkward. But if we, you could still do the same thing and get the same effect, except you wouldn't have to worry because now you could take out all of the rods and all of the puppeteers and all of the things by just simply doing another pass. There must have been something magical about like being on the set of Gremlins and calling action and actually seeing with your own eyes the creatures right there with the actors. Like That must have been insane. Well, the one thing that would not happen when I would call action is action because they're, <laughs> they're puppets and they would break. And right. uh, there, was, there was a lot of downtime uh, because they're, they're very complicated. Each puppet was, was operated by more than one person, sometimes up to five or six people, depending how complex the puppet is. And if it's a scene with many puppets, that's, a, that's got many people. And so you'd end up having to spend the whole day setting up a shot right. with a whole bunch of characters in it and maybe only get like two or three usable pieces of it by shooting it in different speeds and shooting it at different frame rates and... Uh, and it was, we were basically inventing the technology as we went on. But, but the charm of that movie, I think, and one of the reasons that it still uh, is popular today, is because it is a puppet movie. And the way that they move and the way that they act is, is, is governed by the fact that there's only so many things that we could make them do. And so we just tried to make the, do the best with what we had. Whereas today, the sky's the limit. You could have them do anything. And, it was, and again, as, as was said, they, they wouldn't have a lot of weight. Uh, I remember watching uh, one of the Hobbit movies, and there was a, a CGI uh, wagon that was going by with a lot of hobbits in it, and it was bouncing around. And I thought, this is this might as well be a cartoon because it was it it, it was correct in all of the specifics. Weightless. It was it was it was it was very detailed. It looked very real, but it was completely weightless. And I just don't think that they've really figured out even now how to do the weight thing. They figured out animals. They figured out with the Narnia movies and stuff. They figured out some pretty good ways to duplicate animals, which is good for animals because obviously now we don't have to have uh, so many people on the set worrying if the animal's going to get hurt. Uh, but it, it, we, we've come a long way. But I think that there's still a, a, a real use and, in fact, a, well, it still a, works. Important because when I saw the uh, the new new Star Wars movie, the J.J. Abrams Force Awakens, when I when I first saw that, they had clearly made a conscious effort to go back to using a lot more practical. And when you saw those scenes, I mean, that is a movie with all the resources and money in the world. When the the best stuff was when they were using these practical aliens, it it still works today. It's not something that you point a camera at today and go. Ugh, I can't believe that used to work. It's creaky. That's flawless. It was so flawless. So I was That's like, the thing. It's like we had just gotten to the point <laughs> yeah. where you could film anything practically, I, I feel like. I mean, even as a kid, I was sort of aware that the movies I was seeing, you know, that were coming out at the time, they weren't quite there, but you were okay with that. You never expected they would. And then we got to this place where, yeah, Total Recall, stuff like that, all look completely real. And then yeah. at that moment, we went, 
okay, fuck it, threw it out and started this other thing. Well, it, it, it sort of takes me back to upgrade because what the thing is that when you have CG, you can do anything, as you just said, Joe. And when, to me, sometimes when you can do anything, nothing means anything. Like what I loved about sci-fi films in the 80s, it's not so much that they had practical effects, and I'm nostalgic about that. It's that the, instead of an alien race falling out of a portal in the sky and just levelling Manhattan, which is every second trailer these days, in the, in the 80s, the stories were compact by force. They, they could, they did, so the story was always a Terminator from the future is chasing one woman or uh, a, a man gets shot up and gets turned into Robocop. They, they, were, they were such a human scale. And um, I find that just story-wise, I find compact stories to be much more appealing than the, it's the story of a giant alien ship that blows up the world. I, I like one robot chasing one woman. Like I, and so Upgrade, I was like, this will be a little, and even the film, I'm about to go and do The Invisible Man in Australia. Um, which is like a new, I'm excited about it. Okay, let's clarify, that's not the title. It's The Invisible Man and you're shooting it in Australia. It's not <laughs> yeah. The Invisible Man in Australia. Yeah, it's not The Invisible Man Goes Down Under. Um, that's the sequel. Yeah, that's part two. Um, but it's, um, it's so small scale. I, I feel like that's the kind of story that I like. It's just something where you're like, I can keep track of everyone in this so movie. So you're not a Ready Player One kind of guy. I like to watch those movies, but right now in my uh, young career, I, I'm not the person who's like, I want to write that movie. With yeah. I want a cast of a hundred, and it's going to be, uh, it's going to be, you know. Even though I like to watch that stuff, you know. Well, I, I was reminded today of something that I've always thought, and I think we've talked about this before. To to me, yeah, what you're talking about isn't just about effects; it's about story. It's it's you know, you can make that small story matter just as much as the big one, if not more. And I always think of, uh, you know, I compare, um, oh my God, what's the, is it Armageddon, the Michael Bay? Yeah. Yep. Meteor movie. There's a meteor coming. It's going to destroy the entire world. I care. And I was reminded of this today and I'm envious of some of you who got photos with him. I care so much more about Pee Wee Herman getting his bike back than I do yeah. about the survival of the entire human race right. in Armageddon. You that know? movie's amazing. Quick anecdote about Armageddon. I went to the Australian premiere of Armageddon. They came out to Australia and they did, they did the screening in this huge abandoned like, shed, like some, one of those places on the docks that they would have used as the like, criminal hideout in an 80s film. You know, it was the opening scene of Darkman, basically. And so they, they got it and they put a screen up and they put all these chairs out and then they filled the entire area around it with like upside down cars and lit them on fire and turned it into Armageddon basically I guess to, to convince a bunch of film journalist types to come in and go wow I'm having fun I'm going to give the film a good review and as I was walking out my friend Angus who plays Tucker in the Insidious movies who, for those people who've seen that he was the 7,000th person to make the joke <laughs> Armageddon alright Armageddon out of here because yes. that movie sucked. <laughs> he said that as we were walking out of the premiere. Oh. And then he turned around to see who was right there when he said that. And it was Jerry Bruckheimer, the producer. <laughs> I was just like, and I don't think he knew. And we walked a couple more steps. And I was like, you just said that to the producer of that film. <laughs> and Angus being Angus was like, mm. <laughs> 
I don't think it was a big surprise to Joe. <laughs> you don't yeah. think he was? You don't think that was news to him? Yeah. You know, you know what I think he was thinking? I think he was like, "You're really gonna trot out that Armageddon out of here line and think that it's fucking original, aren't you?" We do that Come in America too. You yeah, know. exactly, exactly. <laughs> you don't think I've heard that one before? Come up with a better insult. Uh, poor Armageddon. There's a lot of real defenders of Armageddon that I've met that will go to the mat it to did, say that it it's did a great. okay without them. I don't think I don't feel bad for that movie. It's uh... yeah. Yeah. Make about $3 trillion. <laughs> did it? Okay. Yeah. You know, it, it did all right. Um, so do you want to, but, but anyway, somehow we're supposed to be <laughs> talking about, I don't even want movies, practical effects movies right before the advent of CG. I keep doing this. I'm, it's your hair. I want to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's distracting us. Hey, I, can, can we get a big hand? Joe Dante has the best hair in show business, I think. Right? <laughs> He's still got hair. <laughs> Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Um, I mean, the, the, I think for me, the pinnacle of practical effects or just a movie that I continually go back to is The Thing. John Carpenter's oh. The Thing. Yeah. Uh, it's just, I mean, I think it's a, it's a masterpiece of a film, um, character-wise, story-wise. I mean, it's, it's really hard for a film to hold up. You know, there's, there's always little signs of what era it's from. In the 80s, it just started to bleed. There's always one thing, like Die Hard's perfect and timeless, oh, except for Bonnie Bedelia's haircut. <laughs> if, on, if only she had a different haircut, you wouldn't know that was the 80s. But there's always, and then there's films like The Lost Boys that are like, 80s! <laughs> oh, well, you knew that in the 80s with The oh Lost Boys. Oh, my God. Boys, the Lost Boys couldn't be more 80s if the movie was called The 80s. <laughs> there is a guy, a, a, an oiled-up guy with no shirt on and a dog collar playing the Play saxophone. saxophone. His name? Tim Capello. The saxophonist? I don't know if that's the American pronunciation. <laughs> I really don't. I'm just going to go for it. He's the guy who plays the saxophone for Tina Turner, or was. Oh, that's Features in several right. of her movies. He struck yes. out to have a solo career, and that was his big single, his big scene in that movie. That movie is, every single decision in that movie, every single decision seems to have been made by somebody saying, how 80s is this, though? <laughs> like, my problem is that Kiefer doesn't have a mullet. Can we get him a mullet, and then it'll be more 80s? Whereas, then there's other movies from the 80s where you're like, oh, my God, this could have been shot yesterday and we wouldn't know. And Die Hard's almost there. You're like, ah, oh, Bonnie Bedelia, you fucked it all up with your hair. Straighten that hair. That movie could have been shot in 1998, and maybe except for that touchscreen thing. Um, but there's, I think the th there's, there's like three movies from the 80s where there's nothing in them that shows what time it's from, and I think The Thing's one of them. Maybe The Roller Skates, if you want to quibble, someone could be like, the guy on The Roller Skates. But I feel like someone that, could totally... That was 70s. Ex yeah, exactly. Like, um, the thing is just so flawless. And I feel like the, again, Rob Bertine's effects, there is, there's, there's no strings. There's nothing in it that you look at and go, ah, that was a little creaky. It didn't quite work. To me, it's the 
pinnacle of practical effects. Well, it, it's also opinion. that thing you were talking about, Joe, where you have to be clever with the camera to get around the limitations of practical effects. And we are all, even if you're conscious of or not conscious of of seeing, you know, they shoot the alien a certain way, so you never notice that the guy in a rubber suit, etc. So we were all trained to look at these films, amazing effects, and then you come to the thing where they just point the camera at this stuff because it's and it's so incredible. You know, there's no tricks. There's no. I mean, you see the guy's head come off of his body and sprout mm-hmm. arms and legs <laughs> and a giant tongue and turn into these dogs. They're not. Whatever he was doing on that, he was doing. 100%. I did read that Robertine had a nervous breakdown on that film and was I sleeping on the set and and yeah. got sick and and like was really all, sick. All that stuff was shot at a warehouse, um, a couple of blocks up from Universal Studios. And uh, <laughs> please tell me you visited the set. One I did, day. and 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 it was after the main shoot, and and um, it, it, there was a lot of styrofoam and a lot of uh, liquid latex. And a lot of things that Cal OSHA would probably say it's not a good idea for you to be breathing this all day. Uh, and Rob was was uh, he was behind schedule and he was sleeping there. I mean, he really it was his it was his life, you know, for a couple of months just to just to get the effects on that movie finished. And then to everybody's disappointment, it didn't open. Uh, and that was uh, that was it was obviously now with the advent of home video and. Uh, VHS and all the things people discovered this movie, but they didn't ins- discover it in theaters, and that's true of many people in my generation uh, who had movies out in the 80s that people now look back at and say, "Oh, what well, must have been a big hit because everybody loves it now." Not true. A lot of those movies just did not do well uh, in theaters. But home it's video. It's amazing to see them. how brutal the reviews were for the thing. They yeah. weren't just like, "Oh, it's okay." They were. They hated it. Which it's incredible. Like now, everybody has to eat their words and say it's a masterpiece. But well, they thought it was gross. You know, there had never been anything like it visually before, and it was, and they just didn't get it. And critics never get it anyway. I mean, you you can't decide whether a movie's any good until at least five to ten years after it came out. I don't don't believe what people say at the time because it's that's in that you you're seeing movies do not give up their mysteries easily. And if you see a movie and you think, well, gee, it's kind of interesting, but I didn't get it, just wait a while and watch it again when you're a little older because it's a different movie. I remember reading, I think it was David Fincher who said the Oscars should be held 10 years ahead. Like we should, in, in, 19, later, yeah. in 1990, that's when you should be doing the best pictures for 1980 because then you would have some actual perspective. Like Goodfellas would have won best picture if we had it 10 years later. That's, we weren't that's really true. Yeah, know, it's wasn't just, that out of Africa? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it was Dancers with Wolves. That it was Dancers with Wolves. Yeah. Good fellows. Yeah. But, but that's the other thing. If you, if you go down the Academy list of all the pictures that won Best Picture, and then you look at the pictures they were up against and some of the pictures that weren't even nominated, and you'll find that the Academy movies are among the least watched and least remembered pictures. I'm still a big fan of The Artist, though. It's a good movie. I just nice. wanted to get that in there. Um, what's he, a movie he just that likes you guys... the Bernard Herrmann music. Yeah, exactly. What's, the, what's a movie that you guys saw initially and thought, yeah, I don't like this movie, and then later had to reverse your opinion and be like, I wasn't, I didn't get it, and now I love it? Uh, for, for me, it's not movies, it's directors. There were a lot of directors that I weren't, I, I, I sort of was down on, like, oh, I don't like Richard Quine, I, his movies, I don't like his movies. Well, now I really like his movies. And uh, it's, it's who you are. I mean, you change. You, you, the things that you see, and don't get, when, when I was a kid, I saw Eight and a Half, and I thought it was interesting, but it was 
grown up and had subtitles and stuff. And, and then I saw it at different stages of my life when I got into the movie business and when I became an adult. And every time I saw it, I was at a different stage of my life and it was a different movie. And I think that's true of almost every great movie is that every time you see it, if you just let, let a couple of years go by and see it again, you will find something different in it than you saw the first time. And very few of those movies let you down. They almost always get better. I'm, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I well, recently, because uh, you and I think like three of our guests just nagged me so much, I finally went back and checked out Blow Up again, which I had Blow not up, seen right. in 30 or 40, you know, I'd seen it as a kid, just did not work for me, and I, I was knocked out by it. But if you're looking for sort of the more, the more simple answer, um, I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan. I realize that every movie they've made, even the one or two not great ones, gets better on revisiting. But I hated Big Lebowski. I was so irritated by that movie. It went nowhere. It set itself up to go here. It didn't do that. Dude. And then someone probably put a gun to my head, made me watch it again. And absent all of the expectations I had brought that had nothing to do with them or the film, it's one of my two or three favorite Coen Brothers films now. But I... It made me angry. I had the exact same answer. I was gonna. That would that would be the Big Lebowski. Because the thing is, they had just made Fargo, and you were like, "What a masterpiece!" And I guess the rule in your head is, it the next one's going to be even better. That's what you want. And it was just, it was so different than Fargo that you were disappointed that they weren't doing the same old thing. I had the exact same thing. I walked out of the theater in Melbourne, going, <laughs> "They really, uh, they really whiffed with that one." And then all of a sudden you realize a few years later, you're like, oh, the Coen brothers are smarter than I am. <laughs> it's, the Coen brothers are the only people where when I watch their movie and I don't like it, I'm like, well, obviously I'm just too dumb. Um, oh, no, the, but, but and, they're, they're and you go, I will you. see it again. I'll yeah, go again, no they're question. Ahead of you. Yeah. I mean, and now the Big Lebowski, when you talk about movies changing over the years, like there's one movie where every time I watch it, I see something different. And I'm mm -hmm. like, I never noticed that... The, it's just like this embarrassment of riches. Like, how could, be, how could they be that good? <laughs> They're so good. It's so funny. And that might be not only my favorite Coen Brothers movie, that could be my favorite comedy of all time, which is saying really? something. Uh, Miller's Crossing is... Your favorite comedy favorite, of all time? My favorite Coen Brothers. Hilarious. Favorite, favorite <laughs> Coen Brothers. Probably my favorite movie, second. Things that... I remember seeing Magnolia. I mean, I loved Boogie Nights. I remember seeing Magnolia. And again, it was too much. It was too ambitious. It, it's almost like... Movies that are just stuffed to the gills with stuff. You, 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 one sitting's not going to cut it. You can't process it all. So years later, I'm like going, oh, okay, this, this movie was ahead of where I was. I wasn't ready right. for this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And, and they're, they're, they're masters of that. I like that feeling, though. It's that, that pleasure of so much stuff. I mean, just in anything is, is kind of mediocre. It's such a pleasure to be in the presence of something that is is beyond your capacity to either make or even grasp sometimes. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the other film from the sort of practical effects era that I always go back to and think is flawless is Aliens, which I actually like better than Alien, you know, not by much, but I just like the movie better. And, um, and uh, that was another one I was watching a lot when I was getting ready to make Upgrade because I, again, you could just touch everything and everything was so compact like it was this one platoon in this one space it's a it's a pretty it kind of feels like a Blumhouse movie even though it has these monsters in it and just everything 
the inventiveness of like ripping the robot in half and having Lance Hen- Henriksen just bleeding milk everywhere. Um, I, 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 whenever I watch that film, it makes me excited about movies again because I watched it during a time when I didn't know the rules of movies. Like I have a friend who has directed a lot of films by now and he said, it's a tragedy, but I am becoming less and less interested in movies as a hobby. It's like someone who works in a brewery coming home and you're like, want a beer? And they're like, I work in a brewery. Give me anything but beer. Like in his time off, he doesn't want to go to movies anymore. And it's kind of tragic that I've managed to hold on to it. I've managed to hold on to this pure love of movies, but we, we will not be having him on the show. <laughs> I, I I always cast my mind back to like the the thing is like working in the film industry. It's such a blessing and a gift, but you do get to know the rules. You know, you see certain trailers and you're like, nah, they pulled out that old trope. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you get a little bit cynical because you start to see the same um, same things repeated, the same tropes, the same techniques, and you're like, it can make you cynical. So. When I watch Aliens and the Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, Gremlins, Piranha, whatever it is, I'm like, somehow I'm like reaching for this kid that doesn't know the rules yet. And anything could be anything. And, and I have to do that. I have to get back to that place a little bit to make a film because it's so scary to make a film. At least for me, I've got this critic that sits on my shoulder who was like, man, you really suck at this. You are terrible, and no one's going to like this. And I think m- most filmmakers would have that person that sits on their shoulder. It's but just you. It's just me. Okay. Um, it's the it's the it's the worry that they're going to find out that yeah. you don't know what you're doing. That yeah. you just make it. We all we all feel that. I mean, it doesn't matter how many movies you have, you make. It's like have have they caught on to me yet? Yeah. They haven't caught on to me yet. I've I got one more picture in me. Yeah. My favorite moment directing is always because I haven't directed many films. I've directed two films, but I, my favorite moment is when someone comes up to you like a costume designer on the set and is like, so, I've narrowed it down to five ties. Which tie should he wear? And you, you kind of do this act where you fake like it's, you're like, definitely that one. <laughs> As if it's like this, you know, authoritative like, it couldn't be any other tie than that one. And you're really just doing this act to make everyone on the crew think that, you really, you're not supposed to go, oh, oh I, don't, I don't know. Uh, don't, don't dither. Yeah, they don't, don't like be it like, you dither. what do you think? Like, it's, <laughs> that's what everyone will tell you. Just don't do that. And um, it's so hilarious, the act. I, I find that really charming about directing is everyone's just picking a random tie as if it's, a, a, you know, an ordained decision. Uh, and, you know, director Joseph Losey used to say that uh, when he, to give advice to young, young filmmakers was, uh, always print the first take uh, because then the crew will think you know what you're doing. <laughs> now that sounds like good advice until you figure out, well, what if, what if, a, what if a prop fell over? What if, what if the, what the guy blew his lines? I mean, you can't, you can't do that. But it is, it is a good idea to get the crew uh, relaxed because the crew is always worried that the director doesn't know what he's doing because they've worked with so many directors who don't know what they're doing. And so it's, the, the, the earlier you can get them in your corner, the better it's going to be. Yeah, like, yeah, maybe you've, you've, is, is there, have you seen um, or had friends you've had experiences or where there's been that mutiny on the set where it's like, uh, this is all falling apart and no one's on the side of the director? Mm, I've, been, the only time I had a, 
a, a mutiny on the set was uh, on Explorers uh, at Paramount. Uh, we didn't hire some of the Paramount um, crew people. We brought in crew people from elsewhere. And oddly enough, wrenches were falling from the top and uh, like near, narrowly missing the cast. Uh, it was, uh, and then when I, when, I, when I did Piranha, which was a non-union movie, which we shot in Texas, which is, was a right-to-work state, uh, the local union decided that they would try to destroy uh, the movie by driving, uh, by uh, uh, hitting, shooting, driving uh, boats through our shots, doing boat horn. Uh, as soon as we said action, they put up a boat horn so you couldn't hear it. Oh, wow. I mean, uh, they were people who were changing rooms in the motel because there were rumors of they were going to bomb it. Uh, this was in 1978, so I don't, I don't know how much things have changed, but um, there's always an element of people who are not, not there to make a movie. Yeah. It's, like, I guess the more I've seen filmmaking up close, whether it's being on a film set, watching someone direct, or doing it myself, the more I realize it's a miracle that any film gets made, and then it's even more of a miracle if it turns out well. If it's a good It's a film. miracle picture. If it's a good picture, it's, it's a, miracle. a miracle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's so... That's why I think there's this reverence for these films. You know, when, we, when you talk about The Thing and Aliens, it's because, you know, I've had people say to me, like, ah, oh, the 80s was the best, ti best time for movies. And I'll say, why? And they'll say, I mean, just look at the films. Ghostbusters, Gremlins, The Goonies, Aliens, you know, Fast Times at Ridgemont High... Da, 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 da. And I'll be like, you're just listing the good movies from that decade. <laughs> there were so many 80, there were so many films made in the 80s, and you're you're just listing off the best ones. You could do it. And that, but it's I think, I think I, I have so much reverence because you look at something like the thing and you know all the ways it could have gone wrong and that it could have just been a terrible, boring film. Or and and the fact that it still holds up, it, that the fact that people today can watch it and be enthralled is kind of amazing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were, that was also, I guess, I mean, that was an era where you could, as, and again, we all think that the era, in, you know, the best year for everything was the year when you were 12. Right. I mean, that's just Joe. Yeah. Well, the, the 80s, uh, uh, the, to my generation, it was the 50s. We looked back on the 50s, as that was when we were kids, and that's when we grew up, and that's when we formed all of our, I mean, half, half the movies that are getting plugged out there are from the 50s. Uh, but old, later generations, uh, the, the, the 80s is the new 50s. And so people are very nostalgic for stuff that went on in the 80s. Uh, and uh, and it'll, it's hard to believe, but you know, uh, 15, 20 years from now, people are going to be nostalgic for this period of these movies. Yeah. And finally, Upgrade will get the audience it deserves. That's a great way to end. Drop the mic. I'm, I'm not running yeah, this. We, we I think I lost Joe there. <laughs> During the 80s thing, I just realized, oh, my God, Joe has to talk about this all the time because he was, like, just fall, falling asleep. Like, <laughs> I, was, I was alive. I was awake. I was, you know, he, my... He idea. doesn't have to show up to these. That's, the, that, that's why it says sometimes, even though... But, uh, no, I, I mean, I did. I, I felt like the 80s, I mean, there were, of course, great movies. But, but it, it, to me, it felt like you were seeing an appreciable decline in the kind of just general day-to-day -day output from, from the... Because the Charles Bronson movies got worse. Yeah. Well, by yeah. the way, they really did. And that's a, that's a good arbiter. We, we did an episode uh, early on with screenwriter Dan Waters where we were all waxing rhapsodic about the 70s. And, then you remember, and we just started 
but tossing out the names of all the really terrible 70s movies nobody ever talks about. You know, Duchess right. and Dirtwater Fox. <laughs> but I can do that very easily for the 80s. I mean, anybody remember Renegades with Kiefer Sutherland and Lou Diamond Phillips? Yeah. <laughs> You're applauding because you remember it, not because it's good. They're all on Cinemax, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they were the ones that you loved when you were a kid, and you go back and watch it today, and you're like, oh, "I just uh, nah, it doesn't doesn't hold up." What's what's the uh, what's the John Stamos film? Too young to die. Uh, never John, too young to die, right? Is that John Stamos fan on the audience? John Stamos. Is there a John Stamos fan? Yes, I'm sure there is. Where? Mrs. Let's see the hand. Mrs. Stamos. Is They're getting a T-shirt. Who was it? You a get a T-shirt. Hey, for the John Stamos doing, fan. You know what we should do? To, we should. Are we doing an audience question part of this? Yeah, we are. We could do that. Are you? You just don't want to talk. You just don't want to talk about your favorite VHS movies. No, I do. I think we've <laughs> run out of is that, that topic. We're supposed to talk. About? That's what you're supposed to. We've talked all we can about our favorite VHS movies. We've used movies. it all up. We're. Yeah. we're well, why don't, I think there, the audience should get a chance. Why don't we give a T-shirt to somebody with a good question? That, what, are there mics down there? We've only got six minutes shout left. It out. There's a hand up there. I don't think they're ready. If you shout out a question, I'll, I'll repeat it for them. Yeah. A question about the shotgun arm. Were there complications oh. with the shotgun, with the shotgun arm? arm? Okay, so how we, <laughs> how we did that is we had a practical sort of little like hole on his hand where the, the bullets would come from. Um, and uh, the muzzle blast was we couldn't do that practically we figured out so that was cg but um there wasn't really it was so simple and in fact i will give away one trade secret there's a scene where the guy who has the arm the gun inside his arm he's loading it and he's just doing that practically because he could do that magic trick he was like a magician <laughs> and so he's just pushing the bullets in and then hiding them and uh and i was looking at it i was like wait everyone's gonna spot that and everybody loves it so there you go Always have a magician on your film set handy. Someone who can do close-up magic. That's in. true. There's a, there's a movie called The Time Travelers, if you want to look, look it up, uh, in which a lot of the effects in the movie were done uh, by magicians. And they're magic tricks that are done in camera. Uh, with well, ro robots having their heads taken off and stuff. It's very cool. Coppola's Dracula. I mean, I, I remember... Oh, um, that's insane. Love I, it. I used to go to Comic-Con as a comic fan. I worked in the film business, and I'd take a week off, and I'd go down there. And I remember we were all so excited because Francis Ford Coppola was coming down to talk about Dracula. And that didn't happen then. They didn't do movies at Comic-Con. And we were all really excited, not realizing this was the beginning of the end, of course. Yeah, right. but, but he showed a bunch of stuff in the film. But that, that entire film, is, is all the tricks are in camera. And he tried at least, they had magicians working on it, and he tried to um, stick to the... Only effects that were possible in what 1912? Yeah, that you could have you effects done, that you could have done when they shot the original Dracula, or oh, was it maybe yeah? Or I mean, maybe, it was yeah. it's an amazing thing, but yeah, I mean, magicians are. There's great. another film that on upon first viewing I wasn't quite sure, and then it just like a fine wine, just gets better. It really does, and there's a, there's a great um, I don't know is it on the DVD except for Keanu. It came out on a Criterion Laserdisc. This was the it's early, harsh. It's harsh. The early we days of LaserDisc, and they, they were taking full advantage of the programmability, and there was a sequence on one of the discs where they would give you several different takes of a scene, and you could edit with your remote control a finished version of the scene, and it was a scene between Keanu and Winona Ryder, and it was her delivering lines to him, and then he'd go, oh, and he has this whole long spiel, and there's another take of her delivering all her lines, and it's him doing this whole long spiel. And then the third take is her delivering all the lines, and he just goes like that. 
And of course, that's the take that Copley used is him just shrugging. <laughs> shrugging. Doesn't I love care. Keanu. That has my favorite. I, mean, I really do. He's God. But my greatest favorite moment in that movie of his career is Keanu saying, I fear, alas, the Dracula has outsmarted us again. <laughs> but it's a great movie, and if you haven't seen it, you should see it. It's, I remember uh, when he delivered that line, if I may inquire. And I was just like, oh, I think that's his first line in the film. But, but speaking of the, the, the practical effects to digital transition, it just, I, I was um, just starting out as a writer. I was working with a friend of mine who did a lot of work, a guy named, one or two people here may know him, a guy named Randy Frakes, who did a lot of work with Jim Cameron. They came up together as effects guys under Corman. And Randy always worked with Jim on stuff in some capacity. He worked on scripts. He would write the book of the movie. He novelized the Terminator films. Um, and he and I were working on a script together while Jim was making The Abyss. And it was a goofy thing about underwater vampires. And I had come up with a scene that I genuinely, I've been working on movies for a couple of years. I had no idea. I was like, it's a great idea. No idea how to do it. It's about a guy, he's standing on a bridge. A boat goes under. He jumps off the bridge. And on the way down, because he's a vampire and he's an underwater vampire, he turns into a shark. That's not a makeup effect. I have no idea how you do this thing. I go, we can't use it. Randy goes, don't worry. Jim's working on something. <laughs> He's changing the industry. <laughs> and, yeah, and just a year later, you don't have to explain. Well, I look forward to your Vampire Shark movie yeah. soon. <laughs> who, else, who else wants a T-shirt? Anybody? Should Any? I just throw them out? Do we have the capacity? Oh, my God, look at this. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> we should make them do no, something no, no, for no, the... No, no, what? Oh, wait, is this guy collecting it? Oh, the front row's got the advantage. All right, now he, now he gave away all our oh, T-shirts. wait a minute, no. What, what's this? Dude, <laughs> come here. Boom. Oh. You'll be wearing that for you. Oh, where did you... <laughs> you realize it says go to hell. Leaves. We have a question over here for this, this young lady. We're, we're out. Oh, I'm, we're out. One, one more question. There's no more... Oh, for the questions. I think about a T-shirt. No more bear. Yes, question. What was um, um, it like working on Saw? Uh, it was amazing. I mean, it was an amazing time in my life because I, uh, I'm from Australia. I'm from Melbourne. I met James Wan at film school. We finished film school. We kicked around making really bad short films for a few years, wondering how we were ever going to make a film. After a few years, we started to get really desperate and we thought, we're going to have to pay for a movie ourselves. And I wrote the script for Saw and suddenly it kind of took off and we were shooting it in LA. So for me, it was like a dream come true, even though the movie was so low budget and I didn't care. To me, it might as well have been, you know, uh, the Avengers in terms of, <laughs> because Making any movie for me was amazing. It, it, I did, it, you know, back then I didn't care how that we had 18 days to shoot it and no money and no, not, no anything. I was just happy to be making something. So it was an amazing time. Thanks well, for the question. Lee, thank you for coming Thanks out. Thanks for thank having you for joining me. Us. All right. Thank you for coming out to Pasadena. Dudes, legends. Thank you, Monster Palooza. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Tony Timponi. 
Yes. Um, thank you, everyone. Be sure to check out the trailers from our website if you don't already, and listen to the movies that made me. We drop every Tuesday on iTunes and everywhere else where you get good podcasts. Thank you very much. Thanks. The official podcast of trailersfromhell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.